Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning. This is Susan Thompson of Colgate University, a host on New Books Network in African Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. Thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Pierre Schouten of the Danish Institute for International Studies. He has written a breathtaking book, Robot Politics, The Origins of Violence in Central Africa, published in 2021 by Cambridge University Press. Shouten mapped more than 1,000 roadblocks in both the Central African Republic and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In so doing, he illuminates the relationship between roadblocks and what he calls frictions of terrain. These frictions demonstrate how rebels, locals, and state security forces interact in the making or unmaking of state authority and legitimacy. Looking at roadblocks as a kind of infrastructural empire that existed before the Europeans first arrived in Africa, Shouten develops a new framework to understand the ways in which supply chain capitalism thrives in places of non-conventional logistical capacity. He thus reframes how state theory fails to capture the nature of statehood and local authority in Central Africa. Shouten calls out governments, the UN, and other international actors to highlight how control of roadblocks translates into control over minerals, territory, and people. No analysis of the drivers of conflict anywhere in the world is complete without consideration of Pierre Shouten's groundbreaking book, Roadblock Politics. Pierre, welcome. Thank you so much, Susan. The pleasure is all mine. It's really lovely to be here. Thanks so much. I just want to start with uh, the most obvious question. What motivated you to write the book? Well, thank you. I think that's uh, that's a great question. I think there's basically two reasons uh, why I uh, decided to, to write the book. Um, the first one is really um, the uh, amount of uh, cognitive dissonance I experienced when doing uh, fieldwork in Uh, places like Eastern Congo and the Central African Republic on the one hand, and really the kind of frames that that I came equipped with in my uh, toolkit, my analytical toolkit when doing the fieldwork. So so you got to understand that most of the debates uh, that one uh, uh, equips oneself with when one takes to uh, doing fieldwork in in, uh, Central Africa are theories that have to do with state failure and state quality, uh, with what drives conflict, and uh, very quickly, these kind of debates circle in around, um, on the one hand, uh, the conflict mineral debate. So the idea that most of the conflict in, in Central Africa is driven by control over mining sites and uh, lootable resources, if you will. 
uh, a discourse very much driven by uh, initially the likes of uh, Paul Collier and other theories of, of, uh, of what motivates uh, civil conflict. And on the other hand, we have this really uh, very heavily weighing uh, framework of, of what it means to be a functioning state. And that usually involves the, the kind of conventional trappings of control over territory and the population uh, within it, uh, centralized authority over armed forces, et cetera, et cetera. And really, uh, none of these, these kind of uh, heavy heavyweight frameworks helped me to make sense of uh, what I encountered when I was um, trying to get from one place to the other, uh, navigating through uh, very complex uh, logistical terrains, which involved indeed uh, at uh, a frequency of about uh, once every 10 miles, uh, an encounter with a roadblock. Uh, so, so on the one hand, this kind of very practical empirical reality that I encountered out there, and I hope we can talk about it a bit more, what exactly it, it means. And uh, the fact that it found no place in pre-existing theories was, was something that, that, uh, that drove me uh, to, to explore this matter further. And then on the other hand, um, I have to uh, also point towards some individuals, which, which uh, really inspired me to, to write this book. Uh, so when I first presented the, the the kind of outline of how I see conflict and roadblocks and and capitalism hanging together uh, in uh, the University of California Berkeley at the Center for African Studies, uh, the head of Areo of of African Studies, Leo Areola, said, "This is such a weird history. I've never heard something like this before. Where are you publishing your book?" And and I hadn't at that point in time made any plans to to write a book, but but uh, just that reaction uh, in and by itself told me. Maybe there's a book in here. I have so much to say about this topic, right? So, so that really motivated me to um, to to continue uh, and do so. So, I think these two things together, on the one hand, this this kind of cognitive dissonance and clash between what existed out there in terms of theory and 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 what I encountered uh, uh, on the ground, and on the other hand, uh, Leo Ariola and a number of other individuals, which really uh, pushed me to um, to pursue this book. I love your answer for so many reasons. First of all, that sense of curiosity that should drive any intellectual um, project. I'm so happy to hear that. But also the role of mentors and other colleagues. That's just so great to hear. When I was reading your book, I was actually thinking about Carolyn Nordstrom's book, Shadow of War. And I don't know if you've read it, but um, mm. she writes about militarization and um, shadow networks, the political economy of shadow networks. And your book to me really illuminated like, you know, ground zero of these networks. And for me, the primary contribution is your analysis of the role of ro roadblocks on conflict, but also on local livelihoods, lots of stories mm -hmm. about mamas and other women trying to get to market. And of course, how- Right, I mean, just, just if, 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 okay. if I can- Yes, if, yeah, I, if I can intervene there, I think that that's that's one of the other things which uh, which really pushed me to uh, to do this book is that if you ask people in in Eastern Congo or the Central African Republic, uh, often in South Sudan, whether it's rural areas or urban areas, like what is the main impact of of conflict? Uh, uh, what does conflict mean for you? What is the main what what is the main thing you 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 feel feel of it in your everyday lives? People will say. It's it's the costs of things. It's the 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 unsafety uh, at the roads. It's the the, uh, the actually yeah the roadblocks right. So so this was something that was so much in in our face uh, as conflict researchers. Yet because of these these very heavy frames uh, around uh, conflict minerals, uh, what we think, how the state should work, 
we just uh, uh, collectively chose to disregard something that was so so blatantly uh, in our face. So, so indeed, the everyday experiences of people living in Central Africa were another kind of driving force for me to uh, pursue this book. Yeah, I think that's why I appreciated your book so much. And you have a very rich analysis in the second section, which we'll get to in a minute, about the role of rebels. And of course, Rwanda being kind of a um, an unhappy neighbor and being sort of manipulative of local politics and that individual and community perception of security, I think is another great contribution of your book. And I wanted to start just at the very beginning. You speak of sovereignty as something that exists on a shoestring. So, you know, roadblocking as a kind of decentralization attempt. Can you explain to us how sovereignty, you know, in political science and state theory doesn't really apply to Central Africa? And why it's on a shoestring? Oh, absolutely, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think um, what I try to do is is just to imagine uh, uh, if I myself would be a uh, would be state builder. Uh, if I want to uh, build a state, um, and I have limited means at my disposal, I don't want to waste all my energy engaging in state building. What kind of uh, minimal form of the state would I pursue? And um, the kind of theories we have about what people do when they when they build states, so what we have about state making, is, is a fairly elaborate process, trying to control a whole territory and all of the people inside it, and then provide public services. Whereas I think if you look, uh, the historical record uh, will speak to you um, in that uh, in most places and most times of the world, that's not, that's not what state builders, state makers actually do. Um, if you have limited means, the most intuitive form of practicing, uh, uh, exercising a form of, of sovereignty uh, is and has been, I think, um, again, um, almost always, uh, been a much more limited form of uh, state making, one which basically boils down to setting up shop uh, by the side of the road and forcing anybody who has the ambition to pass to simply pay up. Um, and this uh, doesn't go only for Central Africa, but it also goes for, uh, for instance, Europe. I mean, in, in, in uh, the Great Britain of the 19th century, I was stunned to discover that, that up until the 1850s, there were about 8,000, and I repeat, this is not a mistake, 8,000 turnpikes and toll gates uh, spread over this territory. In France, there were about 4,000 uh, along the Rhine, this, this big European river, 62 uh, toll points. And uh, so, so even in the prehistory of the European state, right, before states controlled their transport networks, what state actors would basically uh, do most of the time is simply set up shop, you know, besides the road and uh, use weapons to force people to pay a toll to pass. And so the kind of African experience that I try to foreground in this book, Roadblock Politics, um, is, is not in that sense, a historical or regional uh, anomaly. There's not no kind of African exceptionalism to the point I'm trying to make, even though the phenomenon uh, in Africa today of, of roadblocks is, of course, uh, uh, much out of proportion compared to, to how you might find it uh, in, in other places. That's one thing I love so much about the first part of your book was that um, recognition that this is not an African phenomena. It just happens to operate in this way because of particular mm. colonial and um, pre-colonial legacies. And I should just say for the listener that your book is actually divided into two parts. The first is the prehistory of the roadblock told through these European examples that you just mentioned. 
but also through Hongo and other mechanisms um, of control. And then the second, of course, is about the application of roadblocks and how they operate um, in everyday life in these two cases. Can you provide us a more um, robust prehistory for the listener? I'm thinking like beyond Hongo, of course, your concept of infrastructural empire, and of course, my favorite, the revenge of distance in chapter four. Right. So I think that that's what you're looking at and what, you, what you're uh, really grasping here uh, very neatly is a kind of a his, historical uh, dynamic that I'm trying to outline, a kind of periodization in three parts, which hinges on this crucial uh, variable, uh, if you will, which is the infrastructural power of the state. And so infrastructure, uh, you know, uh, road networks, railways, uh, et cetera, et cetera, is something fairly recent. I mean, uh, until the early 20th century, most countries uh, did not have very elaborate transport networks and thus could not exercise uh, the kind of logistical power, you know, deploying troops and state agents to all parts of their territory that we associate with the modern state. So before the 19th century, uh, it was much more difficult for a state to practice sovereignty as we usually conceive of it. And instead, it made much more sense for states, and that's what they, I think, did in practice all over the world, is uh, indeed sit, sit down by the side of the road, uh, you know, maybe make a nice castle out of it, um, and basically levy uh, taxes on long distance trade or, or certain products uh, transiting through uh, these kind of uh, points of, of sovereignty, if you will. And uh, so then you get then you get this 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 invention of infrastructure. The word itself dates from 1875, and states all of a sudden start to, there's this, there's this global construction boom of mostly Western countries, but also other nations, all of a sudden expanding their infrastructural reach and kind of overlaying these territories to which they lay claim, colonial or their, their kind of national territories, with these, these infrastructure grids, which allows them to kind of exercise new forms of control, um, channel mobility, instead of kind of taxing it at these simple points, and transport trade becomes administered trade, something kind of in the internal tract, lodged in the internal tract of, of these huge uh, administrations. Um, but, and this is where I think I disagree with a lot of analysis, for most people, that's kind of the end of the story. Uh, this is when the modern state got born, and ever since we've been kind of equipped with these infrastructurally strong states, so we should kind of take this idea of the state as this apparatus which controls its territory and population as a point of departure uh, for analyzing any kind of place in the world. But in most parts of the world, since decolonization, the 60s, perhaps the 70s, structural adjustment uh, in the 80s, the, the, the kind of infrastructural grids that, uh, that had been developed in the first part of the 20th century actually start to recede. Uh, there's, there's a lack of maintenance, there's often conflict, uh, which kind of uh, forces administrations to, to suddenly withdraw from their transport networks. The structural adjustments, which means, you know, divesting actually from the public administrations, which were there to maintain these infrastructural grids. And that means that uh, the conditions of possibility for roadblock politics, whereby states do not entirely control uh, their transport networks any longer, uh, comes back with a vengeance in many parts of the world. And I think that uh, what I try to observe for Central Africa uh, is, is, is that it's in the wake of this kind of uh, receding of straight infrastructural power, and this is very, very literal, that, that uh, you know, uh, 
Congo has a road network of 152,000 square kilometers, 152, kilometers, but it's mostly on paper that it exists. This is a World Bank document from 1990 saying, this is the Congo's road network that it inherited, quote unquote, uh, from, from the, the Belgian colonial administration in the 60s. But now, you know, 30, 40 years later, it only exists on paper. And that means that it's very quite difficult to practice statehood as we understand it conventionally, you know, controlling your whole territory and everybody within it and all the activities is fairly difficult if it's really, uh, if it's just very practical to, practical to get from A to B. Um, and instead, what, what, it, what it makes possible, these kind of uh, disintegrated, dilapidated road networks, is that it's possible locally to force power out of the friction of distance that kind of exists everywhere across these net, these these national territories where the infrastructure grid um, uh, has kind of withdrawn or has never existed, right? So, so, so basically, in the most general sense possible, I think that roadblock politics is something uh, that 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 can happen uh, under two conditions. One is where states don't control the entirety of their uh, transport networks, and the other one, and I think this is really important, is that. Uh, it only makes sense to practice roadblock politics if, if capital is concentrated in the sphere of circulation and not in the sphere, sphere of production. Um, so, uh, you know, if you're a Congolese farmer and uh, you farm your products and you want to make money out of the kind of surplus you have translated into other goods, you need to take it physically on your back to a market. And the fact that you have to do that means that, 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 that's, that it's... it's that you have to go to the market means that it's interesting for someone or possible to stop you and say, well, if you really want to do that, my friend, you have to pay up. The same goes for minerals, right? In the soil or, or where they are extracted uh, in Eastern Congo, they do not have much value. They only have value if they are taken to these global markets, right? Uh, the same with products like Nestle or Heineken beer. They only have value if they're taken to the customer. So th there's these kind of mobile economies that forge profit out of moving stuff in a very literal sense. And these kind of economies, and this is not something I've invented, you know, this is historically Fernand Braudel, his long history of, um, uh, of civilization uh, emphasizes time and again that before the 19th century, uh, capital was concentrated in the sphere of circulation. And what states fought about was control over uh, mobility or certain channels of long distance trade, as he as he puts it, right? And I think that, say for the 20th century, where when we had some kind of form of industrial capitalism, we have reverted back after the 1970s to something uh, to a similar condition, you know, which which has been much better described by other peoples. And I really have to defer, particularly to Anat Singh when she speaks about supply chain capitalism and, and the way that she does so is is really really brilliant. Is uh, is to say that we have now. Uh, transformed into our global economy into something that is uh, where capital accumulation is lodged into uh, kind of disjunctured supply chains that move across jurisdictions, making profits from these disjunctures between labor laws, uh, the rise, the cost of labor, and, and, and moving stuff right across these kind of disjunctured spaces. And I think that understanding roadblock politics uh, therefore means that you have to kind of understand uh, this form of capitalism on the one hand and on the hand, other hand, what aspiring state makers or people who contest state making projects 
can do, right? If capital is, is concentrated uh, in, in, in circulation in that way. I think that's such a, an interesting transition to my next question, because you have a whole chapter more or less dedicated to Heineken as the thing that circulates in the Eastern Congo. And of course, most analysts think of Eastern Congo as a place of intractable violence and how can life actually function there? And the way that you document, but also write about Heineken beer is so great. So anyone interested in sort of legacies of circulation should definitely check out that chapter. I was thinking too about your theory. Um, one thing you do, you use a lot of James Scott and James Scott, of course, is about power and also um, resistance. So what did you find roadblocks in Central Africa tell us about conflict, quote unquote, minerals and the authority of the state in the periphery? You sort of alluded to it, but I want to move us into the second half of the book here. Yeah, well, um, I think that that, that it's, uh, it, it's really important to emphasize that, you know, we have mapped uh, over a thousand roadblocks in Eastern Congo and in the Central African Republic. And in the first instance, what is a roadblock, right? It's this very simple, nimble kind of thing. Uh, everybody can kind of envision how it looks. And it's really people with guns standing at the roadside, forcing people uh, to, uh, you know, to, to contribute something. It's, it's, a, it's a forced taxation. Um, it's kind of rentier capitalism on, on, on what used to be the road and then forcing people to, to pay simply because they are, they are appropriating that, 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 that portion and the, the right to passage. Um, so this is this is something you could call you know extractivism or parasitism. It's an extractive act, and uh, people in policy circles, uh, economists would say this is corruption, right? This is this is uh, criminal governance. It's it's something which which ought not to be. And 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 of course, uh, in the experience of many many people, roadblocks are indeed a form of uh, of extraction in which there's no kind of uh, clear counterpart in terms of of security or public services that 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 are being offered in counterpart for that money extracted at at the roadside. So that's the kind of gloomy gloomy part of 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 of, of the story, right? And um, but it's really important that to understand that there's a historical dynamic. I would almost want to use the word dialectic, but I'm not I'm not I'm not quite sure. I I, I would go that far. That um, Many of these roadblocks, you know, have a history. And if we take Eastern Congo, for instance, roadblocks started appearing as a kind of uh, endemic phenomenon in the late 80s, 90s, when, when the state really, inflation was rampant. The, 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 the Mobutu state, Zahir, uh, was not able to pay uh, for its security forces. And so there wasn't much left for these security forces, but to kind of uh, take to the road and, and extract wealth by themselves because they couldn't really rely on, on their salaries. So, so by the time we get to the 90s, when the, 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 the Zairean state is really in crisis uh, and you get uh, armed groups and resistance, much of this resistance is, is against uh, this, 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 this army, this manifestation of the army as something extractive at the, at the roadside. But now get this, I mean, Armed groups also want to have some kind of recognition. Uh, their historical experience with the state is, has been extractive. Um, the typical encounter of a civilian with the state has been, you know, at a, at a roadblock trying to pass, but getting harassed and, and, and text instead. So a lot of armed groups, the first thing that they do uh, is to also set up these roadblocks. 
And at first, these might be as a kind of frontier of resistance, right, against uh, corrupt state apparatus. Um, but in a second instance, the longer these rebel groups operate these, 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 these roadblocks, the more it becomes difficult to stop doing so. Because, hey, you're sitting there by the side of the road, and it becomes uh, a kind of self-perpetuating thing that actually it's quite easy to sit down by the side of the road and to make some money. And uh, these rebel groups, which acted as a kind of force of resistance against bad governance uh, initially, now become part of the problem for people. And, and so what you see is then uh, perhaps a faction of the, of the militia or another group in, in the community mobilizing against this rebel group. And so roadblocks become a central bone of contestation right, uh, between the army on the one hand, militia on the other hand, but also between communities and, and the militia that claim purport to, to represent them, right? And um, then the new factions or militia might, might appear uh, to kind of lodge, to kind of dislodge these initial, initial armed groups, but they will in turn maybe also mount their own roadblocks because they are under arms full-time now, they cannot farm, so they need to, you know, get their subsistence, uh, a day-to-day -day subsistence from somewhere, right? And the easiest thing to do, of course, is, is to mount a roadblock. So the kind of proliferation of roadblocks in Eastern Congo, and today we're talking about like at least 800 in just two provinces, is, is part of this very complicated process, right? Of resistance accommodation. Uh, and then again, you know, resistance against these accommodations. And, uh, and, and it even gets more complicated because... Uh, Eastern Congo, the, the, the Kifu provinces about which, which I talk, is a patchwork of communities that have been displaced and that make claims to land and they're neighboring each other. And so if one community militia raises a roadblock, then in the other community, the next community, this is being watched uh, with a bit of anxiety that oh, now, now they have a roadblock. And then perhaps uh, to kind of restore this kind of equilibrium between communities, they will also mount a roadblock, right? So, so roadblocks are really part and parcel of this very complex politics of uh, accommodation, uh, regional equilibria, uh, frontiers of resistance against the nefarious impact of long distance trade on these, on these very uh, unstable equilibria between, between communities. So that, so that uh, it's not just about imposition, it's not just about extraction, it's also about, um, about resistance, as you said, right? It's such an interesting um, answer. And I just want to direct the listener. You have this great section in the book where you use Catherine Newbery's analysis on how women who used to go to market, they would pay, they were paying because there were services, the roads function, the bridge was working, et cetera, et cetera. And then over time, it became too extractive as you noted in your analysis. And these women felt resentful and the, the local actors manning these roadblocks lost the support of those women because they lost the local resources that they felt they were paying for in lieu of state taxes. I think just bring that up for the um, listener because of course um, you can't really study Central Africa without the Newberries in my mind anyway. I wanted to take like a little bit of a pivot here if you don't mind. I attended many talks um, as I prepared for this interview and I've been reading your book for about six months on and off. And I noticed in many of those talks that um, many people in the audience were concerned about the role of roadblocks in promoting violence and maintaining violence at the local level. Many people asked, shouldn't we just dismantle 
these roadblocks. And I always thought when I heard that, mm. this seems to be like the, it's not really the point of your book, like what to do with these roadblocks. It's rather that roadblocks are part of a vital chain of local economies that in turn feed into and benefit from global supply chains and non-conventional logistics. So my question is, how did you take those um, comments? Like what kind of comments is your book generating? And what is the role of non-conventional logistics in understanding these supply chains, but also just the presence of roadblocks that you noted in your previous response to me are just so easy to set up? Mm. Yeah, right. I think I think it's a great question. And, and uh, much of these questions uh, began before the book came out, right? Because the book is based on uh, collective work, um, uh, collective work with teams of local human rights activists, uh, researchers, uh, community uh, activists in, in, in Eastern Congo and the Central African Republic who, uh, who work together, uh, together with, uh, with the Belgian NGO uh, IPIS uh, to really uh, map this phenomenon. So we had teams going out, traveling all these minor roads, sometimes doing you know, 10 days on foot, uh, through uh, through over footpaths in 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 foresty landscapes and over hills etc cetera, etc cetera, to really uh, create these these maps and so for for the listener if you want you can access these 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 maps uh, interactively we have created interactive web maps which are available online which you can kind of click on any roadblock and get information often a picture uh, on on where it's located what kind of things it does it takes how many people are present what kind of agents so all this this rich empirical material. Is, is very much a collective effort. And, um, and uh, once we started out doing that work, of course, we did a round consulting with uh, relevant stakeholders in, in the Eastern uh, DRC uh, and in Bangui, in the capital of the Central African Republic. And the first reaction we got from, from the UN um, was a kind of mild interest. So they invited us over to present the ID uh, to map these roadblocks. Uh, further inside the uh, this kind of air-conditioned uh, container that is that is the typical UN office, and uh, one one UN uh, high-level person, uh, I won't mention the name, just uh, just freaked out. He was just like, "These roadblocks are, are, are perhaps a nuisance, but they're not important. You cannot map them. It's not something that the UN should dedicate resources to." And I don't understand uh, why we're even here uh, having this meeting, uh, wasting my time. And uh, so that was a kind of shock, but it confirmed to me that that basically we were onto something because we rubbed conventional notions of what it means, right, to have uh, to speak about what is relevant in in this context, and that, that the perspective of the UN really did not chime with the kind of everyday experiences that uh, our local researchers, but the more general population of of these these places uh, did have. Um, but once we 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 did map all these roadblocks and. Again, there's 800 in just two provinces. We presented these results. And uh, the first thing we got from uh, the, uh, the head of office of the, of the mission in Eastern Congo was, can you please give us the coordinates? We will clean up these roadblocks for you. Um, and of course, there's, there's an ethical thing. We, we, we can't, uh, as researchers, share information which will then be used for interventions, right? It's an ethical code of conduct. Uh, so, so we would never do that. Um, but it's it's quite interesting that uh, the real the real answer uh, to these kind of uh, to these kind of proposals should not be like uh, you know um, we can't do so ethically, but what would it achieve uh, to 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 take away these roadblocks? Because it is based on the presupposition that if you take away the roadblocks, 
that thereby the problem of of a kind of extractive uh, economy of security actors would disappear. Uh, in other words, to put it plain and simple, the presupposition is that armed actors are stupid. If that that, that if you take away the roadblocks, they wouldn't invent another way of extracting wealth, right? Um, that's the same problem with the conflict mineral story. The, the idea is that if you just certify these mining sites and chase away rebels from the mining sites, then they will say, oh, well, shoot, you know, that was, uh, that was great. We had a good time. Now we'll just stop. Of course not. People in Congo particularly are, are, are very creative and they will always find ways around uh, whatever you try to think of, of, uh, of to, 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 uh, to disconnect um, ec- certain economic activities from, from conflict. So, so in other words, if you would take away roadblocks, uh, secure the roads in some way or another, people who, who have hitherto used their guns to extract wealth from, from roadblock, through roadblocks uh, from circulation will perhaps resort to less predictable uh, and more violent ways of extracting wealth from uh, productive economies, right? And so perhaps roadblocks are not uh, an ideal situation. I do not wish to defend roadblocks as something, you know, that is, we, we, should, we should promote. But I'm just saying that if you take them away, you might take away a relatively predictable interface of extraction and violence with, with relatively well-entrenched rules and limitations. There are some checks and balances that uh, if you take those away, those roadblocks, you might, you know, right now it's becoming fashionable to do kidnappings in Eastern Congo. Right. And those are quite, uh, quite violent. Uh, often the, the, the people involved are, are, are nervous, right? They don't know exactly what they're doing. Anything might happen. And that might that, that means that there's a lot more kind of risk and uh, of, of transgressions and of, of, of violence etc involved in in the possible alternatives so so I, I would I always caution policymakers to really try and think through what you know what in the local economy of reason what would happen right if you take this away and and what are the consequences for people on the ground I mean, I, I, your answer raises so many questions for me that we don't have time to address, but I think the biggest one is the UN's love of formalizing and formal relationships. I've noticed mm-hmm. that in my own research and with many other scholars I've um, spoken with, but also the idea that African actors don't have agency to like solve their own problem <laughs> with or without roadblocks. And you tell right. that there's a great story in the book, and I can't remember the name, name of the leader, but he had access to a mining site. And then the negotiation with the UN that he would just move further away from the mining site. So it appeared mm. as if the UN had done something And your book is full of anecdotes and analysis like that, that I appreciated so much. But one thing I absolutely loved was this turn to non-conventional logistics, because you note that they're actually kind of based on military modes of delivering resources and delivering supplies and material to local communities and you write so beautifully in both Central African Republic and the Democratic Republic of the Congo about rebel groups and the ways in which they've cornered the market on the political economy of roadblocks. And of course, they're very different cases, the density in Congo, but the long haul, long distance um, avenue in the Central African Republic. And I wondered then about the relationship between taxes, which is presumably a legitimate function of states, and roadblocks. Is there some difference in the two cases? Does taxes is taxes the right question? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a really good point, and I think I think we need to take one step back, right, so to to understand what I mean with non-conventional logistics. And I think on the one hand, uh, the term 
I think at the basic level, the term is about a merger of uh, uh, tactics of warfare and tactics of moving uh, through contested spaces. And that merger has been highlighted by other scholars than me, right? To speak about how logistics is perhaps, uh, you know, per definition, a kind of military invention. It's, it's a military practice that has, has, has kind of moved into the civilian field, but not, you know, not shedding this, this some of its kind of military trappings. And so that uh, I think if you look at the globe, more and more places, uh, globalization or global trade is, 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 is highly contested, right? You have uh, piracy, you have uh, cartels and gangs in Mexico disrupting trade, you know, trade routes for very conventional products. You have all these roadblocks in, in, in conflict zones and, and fragile states. And uh, there's a lot of uh, highway bandits in other spaces of, of, of Africa and other parts of the world. So, so overall, there's this kind of uh, global front line in which global trade is being more and more contested. And I don't think this means the end of capitalism, not at all. But I think that in a response to the fact that after the 90s, um, uh, trade has moved away from places where states could guarantee the security of transport networks and is now uh, has, has kind of adapted to uh, has, has found a new way of configuring global trade and, and how it's being organized across these kind of contested terrains uh, without being disrupted. And the, the, the secret to it is, is what Anat Singh describes as supply chain capitalism, which is really um, a something that insiders call, uh, um, they call it uh, uh, hands-off trade or something like that. You know, they, they, it's a uh, it's, it's, it's a way of uh, making sure that trade happens across these contested frontiers uh, without um, uh, global actors, uh, global companies or multinational or, or aid organizations actually being involved in it. So there's these chains of outsourcing always smaller portions of uh, a corporate activity um, from a global company uh, like Heineken's headquarters to the national brewer, to a regional transport company uh, who outsources it to a national transport company, who, who outsources it to a local transporter, who is then faced with these chains of roadblocks along the, the routes that he has to take to deliver beer to, to all these villages. And so global supply chains have learned to work through local uh, uh, ways of getting stuff from, from A to B, which involves, you know, uh, working through uh, transport companies that might have uh, might have uh, generals as their owners who might uh, have connections to rebel groups uh, or, and who are not afraid at all to, uh, to, to kind of strike deals with or accommodate the very forces that aim to, to disrupt and profit from disrupting uh, these supply chains. So you see a kind of structural implication or a kind of uh, implicit entente between uh, global trade and local conflict economies in which both stand to gain, uh, right? And that kind of perverse condition means that it is actually, uh, there's, there's, there's no accountability in the system. It's not, it's not possible at all to kind of verify uh, to which extent aid and trade uh, contribute to the funding of local conflict actors. 
but it has to be, you know, if you just look at the map of, 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 of roadblocks in, in, in South Sudan, in, in Eastern Congo, the Central African Republic, it is impossible to move through that very contested space without contributing to uh, these actors who make claims, right, to, to the politics, uh, to, the, to the possibility of passing. So, so I think we're, we're at the beginning of trying, of, of, of learning to understand this immigration. And I've tried to kind of theorize it a little bit um, by pointing to, uh, to, to, to how I think this works. Um, but it's also important to, to understand that, that rebels themselves are very sophisticated yeah. actors who are reflective about what they're doing and who are constantly struggling to strike the balance between extraction, imposition, uh, and recognition and making claims to, 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 to symbolic forms of power, while at the same time also remaining elusive and, and uh, remaining invisible and remaining uh, out of the hands of their enemies, essentially, right? So, so, so they're very sophisticated in balancing forms of illusion and resistance on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, forms of imposition. I think that roadblocks are a perfect tool uh, if you try to strike that balance, because it's it's a form of portable sovereignty, right? If you will, sovereignty literally on a shoestring, that you basically you know can always just take this cord, put it in your pocket, run and put it up somewhere else the next day, right? So it's it's just a perfect tool for this kind of guerrilla logistics, if you will, uh, that is that is very uh, uh, intuitive uh, in Central Africa, but also in other places of the world. Yeah, that's a great um, transition to my next question. So you speak of illusion, you speak of resistance. Rwanda, of course, has just entered into Eastern Congo, um, just as the Commonwealth um, is arriving in Kigali later this month. I guess it's still May in June. And then, of course, you finish the book with cases, you know, Syria, Somalia, Afghanistan. Um, does your theory, do you think, speak to what's going on in Eastern Congo right now, or Rwandan invasion? Does it tell us anything, for example, about the disruption in global supply chains, wheat in Ukraine, for example? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that uh, the book starts out, uh, actually, in uh, almost nearly uh, exactly 10 years ago, when M23, uh, a rebel group from Eastern Congo, Le, Mar Le Mouvement de Marche 23, uh, first invaded uh, a portion of Eastern Congo and started mounting these roadblocks. And now 10 years later, it's back, the same group, right? And this group um, has uh, is not a Congolese armed group um, completely. It is a group which has very strong linkages to um, the, the 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 very small neighbor of, of of this giant, which is which is Congo, it is the eastern neighbor uh, Rwanda, which is a very small country, but which has a huge weight, disproportional weight in the geopolitics of the region, and which since its birth, the the the, the, the kind of uh, since the birth of the um, post genocide state, uh, Rwanda and Congo have been have been intimately linked, and and I think that. M23, it's safe to say, is, is, is a proxy for that, that influence. Um, but it is quite important to underscore that, that the regional geopolitics in this area are so complicated, you know, because on the one hand, Museveni has tried to expand its influence in Eastern Congo. It has sent uh, Ugandan soldiers into Eastern Congo to chase the ADF, but also to secure trade and to build a road network in Eastern Congo so as to facilitate the extraction of uh, timber uh, and gold, uh, et cetera, uh, from uh, the Eastern DRC to 
uh, Uganda for further export uh, onwards. Uh, that's just one of the big uh, problems is that much of the, the uh, natural resources of, of Eastern Congo are being exported uh, legally um, from Uganda instead of through Congo. So all the taxes are paid uh, in the neighboring country. And, and so, and so uh, Rwanda and, and Uganda have their own problems. And uh, when, when Uganda started uh, interfering uh, in, in Eastern Congo, on invitation huh, uh, of, of President Chisikedi, uh, then, then Rwanda felt that that, that, that that leads to a kind of dis, disbalance in, in, in regional influence in Eastern Congo, right? So they need to correct that. And so uh, M23 in Eastern Congo has in part to do with competition over uh, crucial trade corridors and trade flows from Eastern Congo. Where do they go? Do they go to Uganda? Or do they go through to Rwanda? There's 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 a few border po- points, Bunagana in particular, which you know where trade could go either way. And for these neighboring countries, Uganda and Rwanda, it's quite significant uh, which way uh, teak and uh, tropical hardwoods and all these minerals go, right? So uh, not at least for the kind of balance of power regionally between between these countries. So so definitely there's there's something going on there which is really important and which has all uh, potential to escalate. Um, but I have to defer for this kind of big, you know, uh, geopolitical dynamics to people like Jason Stearns, um, Justine Brabant, and, and Sonia Rowley, for instance, who are much better at analyzing these things. Because as a researcher, I, I'm always, I'm quite tall, but I'm always looking down, you know, with my face down to the ground, and I'm much more comfortable speaking to people in rural areas and people who are not so involved in high politics. And so my analysis tends to kind of shun some of these higher level uh, dynamics. Uh, in favor of, of 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 more local or more grounded uh, perspectives uh, and dynamics, but that said, I think that uh, you know uh, Ukraine has showed how uh, you know the, the invasion of Ukraine had huge implications for uh, global supply chains of wheat and grains, uh, and now oil and uh, and gas, of course, mm. and these only compound uh, pre-existing. Um, issues with global supply chains. There's been a number of, of huge implications of COVID and everywhere around the world, I think people are getting more and more aware that this issue of seamless global supply chains, last minute delivery is not so uh, frictionless as we thought it was. It's not so seamless as, as we thought it was. And I think it might be possible that, that uh, uh, frankly speaking, that, that uh, we are entering an era in which uh, global trade is not uh, so self-evident anymore, and in which it is uh, more and more uh, accepted that, that global trade is something fundamentally contested, deeply political, and uh, imbued with its own problems, and in need of uh, constant securing against the forces that try to disrupt it, or feel that uh, global trade in itself is, uh, you know, a, a disruption or a disruptive uh, activity. And frankly speaking, with uh, all the uh, evidence accumulating of, of how unsustainable our, our you know, uh, global economic uh, metabolism is in terms of its ecological impacts. Uh, perhaps that's, uh, that's an important, um, important caveat to, to, to build out, right? Yeah, I think it's so interesting too, because it makes me think of just-in-time supply chains. And that's part of what we've seen during COVID is that we've lacked supplies, not because of roadblocks, obviously, but because of the nature of the high politics, as you call them. And I think it's interesting to apply mm-hmm. the lessons of your theory to these 
bigger systems because um, the logics and the innate human reactions of roadblocks, the creation of roadblocks by human beings is not unique to Central Africa by any stress of the imagination. At least that's how I read your book. Um, but I do want to start to wrap up. I've kept you here for about 45 minutes. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you wanted to share with listeners? Oh, no, I thought this was an absolutely uh, wonderful conversation. I think we've covered more ground than I've, uh, I've managed to do in any of my oh, other uh, recent recent engagements. It's been just such a pleasure to to think uh, think through uh, together with you uh, mm-hmm. around these topics, and uh, and I, and I hope that this is uh, the start of uh, of a conversation we can carry on uh, yeah, beyond be this lovely. specific uh, specific yeah. uh, specific talk. Yeah. Um, with that in mind, um, two questions to wrap up. Do you have any books or articles or podcasts that you might recommend to listeners, number one? And number two, can you tell us what you're working on currently so we can look forward to new publishing from you? Yes. Um, so right now I'm reading a recommendation of a friend, uh, a very old book, Sidney uh, Mintz's uh, Sweetness and Power, which is an absolutely mind-blowing uh, traveled through the global political economy of, of sugar, um, focusing as well on, on its extractive frontier and the plantation system in the Caribbean, but also on how, uh, you know, for, for our societies to become so, so sugar-based, what, what, what happened uh, to, to do so. And I love these kind of entangled global histories of, of commodities. Uh, something which is, which is not academic, but which I've really enjoyed is... Um, a book uh, when we cease to understand uh, the world um, and uh, that book is uh, about uh, mathematics and war and the frontiers of knowledge uh, inside math- mathematics um, and the book is uh, uh, written by um, a Chilean writer uh, who is uh, who is called um, uh, Benjamin Labatut and it's absolutely a fantastic and mind-boggling book that I can re- recommend to anyone. Uh, in terms of podcasts, I don't listen to podcasts. You know, the, the, the podcasts I listen to are podcasts for kids that I listen to with my kids um, to try and kind of overcome the clutter of my brain. Uh, I try to, you know, with, withhold some, uh, some kind of uh, forms of, of consumption for myself. Um, and what I'm working on right now is... Uh, I'm not quite sure, you know, I think on the one hand, I want to delve deeper into the history of roadblocks uh, and and uh, I, I feel just scratch the surface of, of how important control over trade and uh, very simple forms of, of roadblocking were in the prehistory of states that have just been written out of, uh, out of histories of statehood and state formation. Uh, and on the other hand, I think there's a lot of important comparative work to be done uh, so I'm starting up conversations with people who are working in other regions and who, who focus on similar kinds of issues to see if and how we, we, we can do more comparative work around this, right? Uh, so I think that's, uh, that's the most important thing I'm, I'm working on uh, these days. I might just give a podcast recommendation to you. I've been loving recently a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation podcast called Nothing is Foreign. And they bring local level um, perspectives from places all across the world to a Canadian audience. And it's short through 20 minutes through 25 minutes. It's really lovely. Um, but Pierre, I'll, yeah, I'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much. 
Uh, you've been listening to the um, conversation with Pierre Schutten. I'm Susan Thompson. Thanks for listening.